anyone but me. Amen. That he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Amen. The, look, you're going to go through some stuff in this life. <laughs> if you don't believe it, just keep on living another day. You're going to go through some stuff. But what a wonder to know that our God is with us. Jesus Christ is with us through it all. What a wonderful and awesome and good God that we serve. Scott and Jean, again, I just want to say thank you so much for your service. The, the first uh, scripture that I thought of for the plaque was, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into thy rest. That's very King James. But I said, wait, that's if you're going to die. That's not happening right now. You're not going anywhere. So, But um, we are extremely thankful and and I will say that I, we've served four years together. It's been hard sometimes. We know that. But a man who is passionate about Jesus and the things of Jesus and uh, is also aware that the only thing between me and all that the devil would do is the grace of God. But that is enough. That's Scott Ashman, as I have learned to know him. And I thank God for you, brother and Jean, and look forward to hearing what the Lord continues to do through you. Amen. Amen. One more thing I want to say before I get into the message is hopefully you received one of these when you came in today. One City, One Love prayer concert is coming up on Friday, August 19th. That's this coming Friday at uh, the Dell Music Center. Um, and so this is churches from the city coming together and people, Christians from all over the city coming together to pray, to pray, to see God at work in powerful ways in Philadelphia. Amen. And so if you can make it, if a life group says, you know what? Let's do that as a life group. Or if, if there's any way that you can make it there and be a part of that, it's two hours on Friday evening. Pray for some wonderful weather. But uh, either way, the Lord, uh, we, we'd love to see people come out for that. Amen. 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 Well, let me move into the message today. Let me start by asking this question. Does anyone here love a good mystery. Oh my goodness, that, that's more of a response than I thought I'd get. People love a good mystery. You know, you're trying to figure it out as you go along. You see hints, you think you know it, and then you, you, you're, you're lost again. I love a good mystery. Now I know the movie I'm about to talk about is not a mystery movie, but there's a mystery in it, and that is The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz. When I was a kid, I loved that movie. I was scared of the flying monkeys. I'm not going to lie. Uh, and it, I was scared of some other things in the movie. But as a little kid, I just loved it. But I, I'm trying to go back to when I first uh, saw that movie. And you keep hearing about the wonderful Wizard of Oz. And oh my, this man must be great. This man must be powerful. This man must be mighty as they're going down the yellow brick road to find the wonderful Wizard of Oz. But when the mystery is actually revealed of who he is, he's kind of like an old broken down salesman. Amen. 
he, he has all these trinkets and he's got this, you know, this stuff. He's got his technology going on. But when it comes right down to it, he's kind of an old, broken down salesman. But he's got some wisdom. He's got some wisdom to, to offer. But in, in many ways, the mystery of the great Oz, when it's revealed, is a little bit of a letdown. I thought he was going to be more than that. Mark's gospel that we've been walking through is a journey. It's a journey not on the yellow brick road, but it's on the grimy roads of ancient Palestine, where the true identity of this prophet, this wizardly prophet, this uh, teacher, this miracle working phenomenon, Jesus of Nazareth is to be revealed. And, and there have been hints about his identity throughout uh, the, the narrative going through the gospel. And sometimes you think you've got it, you've totally got it, but then uh, you're not sure it goes back and forth at different times. And his true identity remains a little bit elusive to most, even to his disciples. But today, as we come to the scripture, Jesus is going to give the big reveal on his identity. Let's stand together and read from the word of God. Mark 14, okay, Mark 14, 53 through uh, 65, we're going to look at today. So let's read together. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that he, they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. And someone stood up and gave this false testimony against him. The murderers said, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even when they. Verse 60, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now, let's just hold on for one moment. This next verse is Jesus fully revealing who he is. We're going to unpack this in the sermon, but let's now read verse 61. But Jesus, oh, is it up there? No, it's not. Okay. Okay. A man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes, 
Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Amen. Amen. Today, we're looking at the big reveal. The big reveal as Jesus makes it plain for all to see exactly who he is. Let me pray. Father God, we pray that you will bless these coming moments as we unpack uh, your word to us and to your early disciples and to your church throughout the ages. Lord, I pray that you would open up our ears where they cannot hear well, that you would soften our hearts exactly in that place where they need to be softened. Lord, reveal yourself to us even more today by your word and by your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. You may be seated. That was a little different because they're, they're redoing the way they do the slides so that it can be better seen for those who are watching live and it's different than the way I organized it. So I'm sorry for that uh, little mess up there, but here we go. This is the big reveal for Jesus. But before, before uh, we move on, let me just ask one question. How many people here today would like to know Jesus a little bit better as a result of being here today than if you weren't here today. Amen. You'd like to know him a little bit more. Doesn't matter if you've been in the faith for 50 years or 60 years or like my brother Jim in the back, 77 years, birthday yesterday. Amen. So it doesn't matter how long you've walked with God or if you don't know him yet, my prayer is that you will leave knowing Jesus a little bit better than when you came in today. Now this scripture that we're looking at today in Mark 14 starts with uh, some information about Peter as the narrative moves on and the, the, the high priests and the scribes and, and the Pharisees come together to try Jesus. And we see that Peter's out in the courtyard, but I'm going to leave Peter alone for one day. Is that all right? I'm going to leave him alone. And, and the preacher that comes behind me is going to talk a little bit more about Peter because that's where the narrative picks up after today. But here is the scene that's going on. Jesus is brought before a kangaroo court. Has anyone ever heard that term, a kangaroo court? What's going on is uh, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, come together and the scripture says that they're looking for evidence so that they could put Jesus to death. They're looking for evidence so they could put Jesus to death. And he, all these accusations are flying against Jesus. I can just begin to imagine what some of those might be. It's interesting that, um, let's see, okay, all right, here we go, that, that Matthew says it this way, in, in Mark it says they're looking for evidence against him, but Matthew says they were looking for false evidence against Jesus. How's that for a courtroom? They're not just looking for evidence. 
they're looking for, they know they got to find false evidence if they're going to do what they want to do. And they are determined to find false evidence in order to do what they have designed to do against Jesus. That's what they are looking for. So I just wonder what some of the stuff is that's going on, what's being said. Well, we know from Luke that one of the accusations is that he does not want taxes paid to Caesar. He's, he's a tax fraud, man. He is a tax evader. He's telling other people, don't, you don't have to pay your taxes to Caesar. Well, that's not really true. That's not what Jesus said. But these accusations are flying. Someone else may be saying, look, he's putting together this army of rabble rousers. He's got zealots with him. He has these profane, unclean people with him. You got to watch out for him. Accusation. Someone else is saying he cares more about the Gentiles than he does about his own people. He feeds them. We heard about it. He feeds them. He does all his magic tricks for them. That is healings and casting out demons, right? He's doing all this stuff for Gentiles who are outside of the people of God. He cares more about them than he cares about his own people. Someone else might be saying he keeps touching unclean People, he eats with sinners. He doesn't care anything about our law. He needs to get his comeuppance here. Someone else says he treats the Sabbath like it's a Tuesday. Amen. He, he, he doesn't make any big deal of the Sabbath. He does not follow Sabbath the way we do. He has no respect for Moses at all. And someone else says, look. You've heard the stories. I was there. He hangs out with prostitutes sometimes. He, he had one that at his feet, pouring out perfume, kissing his feet, and he treated her as if she was the queen. What's wrong with this man? Is he a holy prophet? I don't think so. These accusations are flying out against Jesus, and in the face of it, Jesus is silent. Doesn't say a word. He doesn't answer back. This is a kangaroo court. Here's the definition. A mock court characterized by irresponsible, unauthorized or irregular status or procedures in which the principles of law and justice are disregarded and perverted. So this is a court where they'll do anything they want. They are not hemmed in by what is lawful, by what is righteous, or by what is good. They're going to do whatever they want in this kangaroo court. Now, here's two facts from this. This is from uh, a commentator named R.T. France. But he says, it was a hearing, hear this, in search of a charge. A hearing in search of a charge, a trial based on already formulated accusations. Can you imagine that? You are, you are arrested and you're brought into a hearing and they don't even have a charge against you. There's no charge. It's a hearing trying to find out a charge. It's trying to set a charge, but they have no charge against Jesus. The, the second part of that is, while the charge is not decided, the verdict already was. 
They didn't even know what the charge was, but the verdict is so that they could put him to death. This is why he was arrested. This is why he was brought to this kangaroo court, because their intention was to put Jesus to death. But here is their problem. They have a problem. Two problems, really. Number one, they have to finish this up in such a way that the people... The, the multitudes who seem to be swinging in favor of Jesus lately, right? Hallelujahs and, and praise to the son of David. That they, they seem to be swinging towards Jesus. If they're going to move forward in this plan, they've got to get something on him that will turn the, the, the common people against him. That's not going to be easy. But secondly, not only do they have to do that, they don't have the power to put Jesus to death. They have to do it in such a way that the Roman authorities will say, you're right, we have to do this. So this is what is going on. So all of what's happening with uh, the accusations being made, but we come now to the bottom line question against Jesus as the high priest stands up and asks Jesus, he says, you're not going to answer. You're hearing all of these accusations, all of these things, and you're not going to say anything. Really? I don't understand that. But Jesus, the Bible says, remains silent in the midst of it all. He doesn't say a word. Jesus is the suffering Servant that the Bible has prophesied of from Genesis all the way through the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament. And most of you know Isaiah's wonderful prophecy in chapter 53. He says these words, he was oppressed and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. All of these accusations, they know, he knows what they're about. He knows what they're up to. And yet Jesus remains in silence. But here is the high priest who comes to Jesus and asks this question. Jesus, tell us now, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? I want you to see something, <clears throat> even in this question of the high priest. He says, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? He does not say, are you the son of God? That's how we would normally say that. That would be normal. But he, he feels like I can't say God. I can't say the word theos in Greek or El in uh, Hebrew, I can't say God because I might break the third commandment. You can't say the name of the Lord in vain. So I'm not going to say God. I'm going to use a different way of saying this because our tradition says we've got to be very careful about saying the name of God in any way. So I'm going to circumvent that and I'm just going to say, are you the son of the blessed one? God forbid he would think someone might think I'm breaking the third commandment. What will the people think? I'm not going to say that. 
Here's the irony. He won't say the word God, but he doesn't have a problem willing to kill the one who is God in the flesh. He is willing, although he doesn't want to break the third commandment, there's some other commandments here. There's lying. There is commandment against killing and murder and coveting. He's willing to break all these other things, but he wants to appear righteous in how he lays out his question. And therefore, he becomes like the ultimate. We see the ultimate hypocrisy right here. I can't say the word, but I'm all right with putting him to death, even though we don't even have a charge. This is hypocrisy. This is legalistic hypocrisy. And let me just put that this way. Legalism always leads to hypocrisy that emphasizes self-justification while undermining God's missional love. If we are caught up in a legalistic type of righteousness that wants to be seen a certain way by a certain group of people, we will do anything to self-justify, anything to protect, and we will circumvent God's love and not care about his missional love to the people that are in front of us. When God's love and animating power Behind when God's love for others is not the animating power behind your religiously or morally inspired interactions with others, you can be sure that at the bottom of that lies a legalistic attempt at self-justification. Let me give you an example of how this might work out for us. Um, look at how you interact with people in, this, in service industries who are serving you when you, you know they're not serving you very well and it, it, it's impacting you directly. Now, let me just give you a, uh, an example of this, no one will be able to re- relate to this, but imagine you're in an Aldi's and the line is very long. There should be four lines open, but there's only one. I know this has never happened to anybody before. There's only one line open in the Aldi's. There should be four, but there's only one, and you're back somewhere near the back of the store waiting in line. Uh, and you're, you're trying to be patient. But as you get closer to the front, you see it's not just that there aren't enough lines, but this cashier is just not where she ought to be. I'll use, it could be a he as well, but I'll, I'll use a she in this example. That They're kind of all over the place, and, and they just don't seem to be paying the attention that they ought to be paying. They're a little off. They're a little nasty with some of the customers, and they're getting some nasty back, and it's going back and forth. And you're in this line, and you've got somewhere to go. You're just getting a few items. But, but you're getting a little ticked off at the situation. If you're acting out of legalism, what happens? You are blessed in being unkind to this person because they're not doing their job like they ought to be doing their job. You are 
given a pass at being judgmental towards her. Having a smug attitude when you finally get there is a totally warranted act because she has not done what she's supposed to do the way she's supposed to do it. And you're messing up my flow. Amen. Amen. But if you're living out of the love of God, Jesus, help us in all these Jesus helped me and save a lot. I'm a save a lot guy too. I, I'm not going to lie to you, but, but help us there. But if we're living out of God's love, it produces something altogether different in us. You have a genuine concern for the person. You have a deep desire to see if there's something I can do, a little word I can say that might make her day better that might make her feel like she is seen, she is cared for. You're thinking, I don't know what this person has gone through. I don't know what's going on with them. But if there's any way they can sense and feel a little bit of Jesus' love that has been poured out on me, that's what my desire is for this person. You're determined to be an agent of God's love in whatever tiny way you can to point her towards the hope and the fact that she is loved and she is worthy of love. It changes us when we're animated by the love of Jesus Christ and not our self-interest. Legalism always inspires us towards self-protection and self-justification at the expense of others. But love is quick to lay aside the idol of self and concentrates its efforts on caring for others well. Self is not the center. Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, we have to look at the ways in which we have inserted ourselves into the very center of the narrative and push God out of the way. Make this world about me. That comes from legalism. And we are called to be a people of God's missional love. So here we are now in the very central moment of the whole gospel of Mark. Here it is. The big reveal. Jesus says, I am. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is being as clear as he could ever be about his identity. And he knows that when they hear this, they're going to understand exactly what he's saying. They're going to pick up what he's putting down. Amen. He, he's saying this not in a tricky way. I've heard too many people say, why doesn't the Bible just say out and out, Jesus Christ is God. He is is eternal God, one of the, the triune God. He's the second person of the Trinity. The Bible doesn't say that. And people will argue, why is the Bible not so clear about the identity of Jesus? Brothers and sisters, as Jesus will say, if you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. 
Jesus is absolutely clear. He leaves no, no, no wiggle room for anything else when he says these words. What he's doing here is he's looking at both uh, the Psalms and the prophets and putting together these pieces of the identity of Messiah. And he's letting them know that Messiah is way more than you ever thought he was. Psalm 110, 1 and 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This was a favorite of those with the messianic hope. And the first Lord you'll see is in capital in your Bible. And that is because it is the divine name that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter three. It is Yahweh or Jehovah. It is the divine name. The Lord said to my Lord, that second Lord is Adonai, which is a a term for Lord. But what Jesus is going to get at is that Yahweh and Adonai both have the same power. They they are two, but yet they are one. He's going to let them know through this scripture that it's not just a Lord, a big Lord and a little Lord, but the one that you think is the little Lord who sits at the right hand is also equal and eternal with God himself. He's going to let them know that. This is from Daniel chapter 7, Jesus' words here. He says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. That's that term again. Coming with the clouds of heaven. This is what Jesus said. He said, I'm going to come on the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, which is what Jesus talks about here. The mighty one coming on the clouds of heaven. He approaches the ancient of days. That is eternal God and was led into his presence. And then the scripture says in verse 14, he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples in every language worshiped him. Jesus is saying, I'm the one coming on the clouds and people from every nation will worship me. The Jews knew one thing that there's only one God and worship God and him alone. That is the great commandment. Only worship the one true God. But Jesus here is saying that I'm the one coming on the clouds and every knee will bow. Everyone must worship me. And then look what it says. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He's not this conception of a human Messiah who sits on the throne of David, but doesn't have all power. He says, I am Messiah, but y'all don't have any idea who Messiah is. He's the one who's coming on the clouds and he's the one who will be worshiped. He is the one uh, who who is the essence of the glory of the eternal God in flesh. Jesus makes plain to them. Here we go. Here's what Jesus makes plain to them. Messiah is more than a table-turning king in the line of David. He's more than a miracle-working, parable-speaking, culture-changing, Roman-destroying peacemaker. Jesus is claiming full equality with Jehovah. Adonai is Yahweh. Jesus is not only claiming a unique sonship, but he's claiming absolute equality with God. 
as eternal God and yet distinct from the ancient of days, he blows away the categories of the theological and religious leaders around him. Hear me when I say this. Jesus didn't fit their theology. And here's the thing I need us to get. Jesus doesn't fit the theology of many who call themselves Christians today. He doesn't fit. Many are preaching a gospel in pulpits today that allows them to look down on other people, those who aren't like us. Many are, are preaching a gospel that allows them to, to, to live in consistent judgment of others who don't quite line up with their idea of what a Christian should be. They don't get it as right as we do. And now, I know that we all might struggle with this sometimes. That's a reality. But Christian, hear this. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you struggle with that judgmentalism, when you struggle with putting others down and putting yourself up, you need to know that that does not come from God. It does not come from the spirit of God. That is a movement of the flesh. It is a movement of the enemy. It's not from God. Now, it would have been one thing if Jesus claimed, made this claim to be eternal God in the flesh, which he made. It would have been one thing if he did that and then lived it out in a way that, that the leaders would say, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I didn't understand that before. I, I, I didn't get the scripture like that, but I can see by the way you do your thing, Jesus, that you must be that guy. Now I can see it. But, but the problem is he did just the opposite of what they expected. They, they cared more about having their specific, narrow theological expectations fulfilled than they did about God's love being manifested and lived out. They cared more about themselves being proved right than the merciful saving love of God being received by poor, hurting, burdened, and broken people. Here's an illustration. Think about Jesus' ministry. Jesus consistently went out of his way, literally out of his way. Right. You, you got to get to Jerusalem, Jesus, but you're going on the other side of the Jordan River. There's mostly Gentiles out there. You're going up to Tyre and Sidon. Again, Gentile regions. You're going to Caesarea Philippi. You're going all over the place. And why in the world, Jesus, are you going through Samaria? You don't have to go that way. We know a way around. Jesus consistently goes out of his way, literally, in order to love people that were the most despised by the religious establishment. That is Jesus' lifestyle. Think about it. Think about this. A Samaritan woman that had a string of husbands and now is shacking up with a dude. And Jesus says, I have to be with you. I've got to meet you. I've got an appointment with you. Poor, destitute, disease-ridden masses that don't have enough to eat. Jesus says, I need to be with you. 
uneducated day laborers without proper manners or good culture. Jesus says, I will be with you. Outsiders, Gentiles considered pigs by many Jews. Jesus says, I need to be with you. Jewish tax collecting traders who traded out uh, their, their lives in order to serve Rome and get rich at the expense of their own people. Jesus says, I want to be with you. Zacchaeus, I've got an appointment at your home today. This is not what God would do. God, the, the, the leaders are thinking, God would be the one who would vindicate us. We're leading people in the ways of righteousness. God, if, if this were God, he would validate us. God would draw near to us and push those people away. The unclean, addicted sinners whose lives are chaotic, morally uneven at best, and consistently broken. We got it together. God, if he came, would be with us. He can't be God. Here's my question to us today. How are you living out God's love toward people in ways that legalistic, holy people, even your own inner legalistic, holy person? Amen. You got one. Did you know that? You have an inner legalistic, holy person that wants to look down on others. But how are you living out God's love in ways that that person that even that inner voice would find offensive. If you're not doing that, if you're not broken in the way that you love those who seem to be the most unlovely of all, then you're not following Christ very closely because that's where he is. That's what he does. Finally, the consequences. The consequences. High priest tears his clothes. Why? Because he understands exactly what Jesus just said. He tears his clothes. He says, why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? The scripture says they all condemned him as worthy of death. That's what we came here for in the first place. We've got to put this man to death. We got to find a charge. Tax evasion didn't work. Immorality didn't work. That's not enough of a charge to have the Romans kill him. But now we have this charge. He would be God. And if he will be God, then he will be above the governor. He will be above the emperor. He will be the one who is Lord in Rome, the common saying was, Caesar is Lord. That was a call to obedience to the emperor. But now the Christian movement will move forward saying, Jesus is Lord. Dangerous statement. It was dangerous 2,000 years ago. And in many ways, it's dangerous to live that way today. Look what happens. Verse 65, some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists. 
Imagine being blindfolded and beaten and now they're saying prophesy. Who smacked you? Prophet? Son of God? I don't think so. And the guards took him and they beat him. Jesus is getting the beginnings here of the ultimate beatdown. And he knew that as he revealed himself, that would happen. Here's what I want you to see. When Jesus was accused of all these crimes, of all these things, he never once opened his mouth. Jesus did not justify himself, get his inner defense attorney on and try to push back against the charges. He never did that. But when he's asked about his identity, he lets them know this is who I am. This is who I am. He's fully aware that this revelation will mean what, what it will mean to him personally, but he sees beyond his pain. He sees his love for you and for I. He sees that going in this path is the path where his love will be perfected and his, his grace will be poured out because he has received the condemnation and the punishment that you and I deserve in his own body. That is the love of this great God. It is an amazing love. If you ever ask the question, I'm finishing up, what is God like? There's a good place to find that answer. Look at Jesus Christ. Look at the life of Jesus. Look at the love of Jesus. Look at the self-sacrifice of Jesus. Look at Jesus. Hebrews says he is this perfect revelation of God in all his love, in all his mercy, in all of his holiness. But here's the interesting thing about Jesus' holiness that's different than the holiness of many others. Jesus' holiness does not reject sinful people who struggle to, and lose their battle with sin over and over again. I know that's nobody ever in this room. But instead, he wraps them in his love and in his eternal mercy. He invites them into relationship with himself. And then he works out in them a, a transformational power that ends up in their being holy before God themselves. That's only the greatness of this God. God's love and God's power work through Jesus to bring God's glory in the earth through people's lives who are transformed by him. Oh, brother and sister, I pray that we're on this journey together to see God glorified through us. Who am I, God? Who am I? You know my thoughts, you know my sins, you know things about me no one else in this world knows, and yet he comes after you in his perfect love. At the end of the Wizard of Oz, they figured one thing out. He wasn't who we thought he was. <laughs> he wasn't all he was cracked up to be. 
But here, as we near the end of Mark's gospel, we find out Jesus is way more, way more than he could have ever imagined him to be. What a mighty God. I want to leave you with one thing to think about as I close. When you see Jesus for who he really is, what difference does it make in how you live your daily life? In all these, <laughs> save a lot, even if you go to Wegmans. What difference does it make in your closest relationships with the people who really get on your last nerve, but because you're so close, you know you can go off on them? That's safe. What difference does it make as you go about your day, wherever you might be, and interact with different people? My prayer is that we will be people who see Jesus more clearly than ever for exactly who he is. And it will make every difference in every interaction. And it will make a difference when you're alone in solitude with no one around. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have made it clear exactly who you are. What kind of God is this God? Lord, I pray that you would move your people forward in knowing you deeper. Lord, I pray that your spirit would get a hold of us, that we would live in ways that give greater glory and honor and praise to you. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who know that I don't have to defend anything, any accusation, even if there are true ones, but it is my God who defends me. It is my God who is my stronghold. It is my God who is my hope. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Lord, raise up an army of people for whom Jesus Christ is the center, truly the center out of which we live our lives. Glorify and magnify your name in all these things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. You may stand and let's worship the Lord one last time before we leave today. <laughs>